Welcome to Plot Revisited episode 7! Today we are discussing chapter 7 of Philosopher's Stone, The Sorting Hat. Or, as we like to call it, the bad guys are the ones in green. Get ready for a lot of talk about sorting as a concept and Slytherin biases and whatever else we come up with. To start off the chapter, of course, we're just going to talk about some little moments in the chapter that we thought were interesting. And I'd like to start us off with the first character we are introduced to is Professor McGonagall. I love Professor McGonagall. I feel like she is such a unique character in the way that she is sort of the most adult. Like, she has all these personal opinions and biases, but you don't see her favoring the Gryffindors. You don't see her disadvantaging the students from other houses. And despite the fact that she's clearly a good guy, she's not comfortable with people, like, bending the rules. She's very, like, firm in her stances on things. And I find, considering most people are fine with all the rules being broken, if it helps Harry in the end or helps the good guys, it's nice to see that there's one character who just stands by what she believes in and sticks to her guns. Yeah, Professor McGonagall is probably the only decent teacher there. Like, Harry's first opinion of her is when he sees her, his first impression of her is that she seems strict and, like, not to cross her. But she's also is, like, a teacher that, like, creates that stability of school. Like, she treats everyone the same and everyone has to play by the rules. And she has some leeway with stuff, but, yeah, she's just a very, like... I just, compared to Dumbledore and Hagrid and, like, all the other wacky adults in the series, like, she's just so, she's, like, the stability of the series and, like, the general voice of reason when Dumbledore's off doing things that are stupid. She's always the first one to be like, that is child abuse. That is wrong. She really is the one that balances out everyone else's madness and quirkiness by being sort of the sensible one. And it's definitely interesting to see, like, Harry meeting Professor McGonagall and, like, he's she's just this strict teacher and then how it kind of comes at the end of the series where she basically, like, was the one when he she thought he died, she was the one that called out no. She was the one that was visibly, like, upset. And I just really like the relationship and how it grows in the series when Harry's, like, just this young, troubled kid to, like, this bratty teen, and then to, like, this, like, man who is doing things beyond his years. And I can't wait to see it progress as we get further in the series. I also kind of love that out of all of the teachers we meet, Harry's initial opinion of McGonagall is the only initial opinion that's correct. Like, you know, your first opinion of Lupin isn't great because he's asleep on a train, and your first opinion of Snape is, oh gosh, evil, evil, evil. And Quirrell is, this guy seems harmless. I feel like his first impression of McGonagall is his only correct first impression of a teacher. Moving on, um, I just love the Weasleys and how they just, they act like siblings. Because I feel, I, working in television, I just, there's so many things where I have siblings, you have, you have a sibling. So like, I see things in media, social media, that just like aren't how siblings act. Like, siblings say do things like Fred and George do. Like, Fred tells Ron that the sorting ceremony, it hurts. Like, the test you have to do, it hurts. And he makes, he, like, freaks Ron out. And then Ron's all peeved after being like, I just had to put on a hat. And I know we'll get a lot more Weasley twin shenanigans moving forward, but I just love how they all act like normal siblings would. Yeah, I think that family relationship is one of the very 
sort of realistic and grounding and like personal aspects of the series that a lot of readers can connect to because it's such an authentic family experience and siblings relationships that it really does add sort of a a nice tinge of realism to the story specifically in the more fantastical moments when you've got siblings there still trying to mess with each other it makes it feel a lot more real it's definitely more realistic because they are so young and I feel like the relationship I have with my siblings now is different because we're adults and we probably are a lot nicer to each other than we were when we were 11, 12, 13. And so, yeah, it's just like really one of more of the authentic parts of the series that it makes it fun to read. So you had a point here about how they how do they keep the sorting process a secret from the new first years? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, like, books written about Hogwarts, and all of the wizards and witches who come from magic families have heard about sorting and know about the houses. So I find it incredibly curious how none of the children know what the sorting process is, like how they've managed to keep the sorting hat a secret. I think that's very interesting. Like, I don't know if that's some type of spell where there's, like, a secret keeper where only Dumbledore can tell someone who doesn't know about the Sorting Hat about the Sorting Hat or something like that. Because I feel like it makes sense for them not to know in that if you know how the hat will sort you, you can try and prepare yourself to sort of trick the hat like most people do when they take online sorting quizzes. You know the result you want so you can sort of skew your results and oh yes beat the system or maybe that's a Slytherin thing I don't know but um I think that it's hard to understand how they manage to keep that secret like there has to be some sort of curse involved some sort of secret magic that keeps that secret because I wonder if it's almost a plot like fail because I get the whole idea is that we're it makes sense for it, everything to be new because we're reading from Harry's perspective. And Harry, it's like a, what you kind of want in this kind of scenario. You want to have the narrator, the person we're seeing it through, be the fish out of water. So while they're learning, we're also learning as we to tell the story. But yet looking like in the future, like it doesn't really make sense because there's so many families that have kids and like how do you expect like all these older kids not to tell like their siblings or how do you expect like parents not to tell their kids and if it's written in books like I like it feels like it would be written in books so I just feel like it's odd that like no one it seems none of them knew about it but of course this is the first book so it just could have been an oversight I feel like if the point was just that we learn about how sorting works as Harry does they could have done that for the reader without having Ron not know how sorting works. Because Ron has so many brothers who've been sorted before him that if you can physically tell someone how sorting works before they've been sorted, I'm sure one of his other brothers would have told him the truth. Like certainly the Weasley twins would make something awful up as they do in the book. But I think if they were physically capable of telling their siblings how sorting works, I think Ron would know. So I feel like it's either there's some curse involved that keeps the secret that's just never mentioned, or it doesn't really make sense. Because Ron would know. Yeah, it is very confusing. Mm -hmm. I just think it makes sense for the plot to, for no one to know until we it, it happens, because it just works better for the story. But in the context of the whole series, it is kind of odd how no one would know or no one would tell. It kind of reminds me of like Santa Claus, but like, I don't know, do they tell the students not to tell? younger students like it's it's very weird 
Yeah, it's just, uh, I guess like the moment of having Ron be like, oh, my siblings say it's awful and painful is fun and cute for a kid to read, but it's not logical in the long run. It's one of those like, in the short moments, this is the cute way to write the thing, but in the long term, it's not the most logical. So I have this theory that I came up with just now, and I think it's original. So okay, my theory is that the twins didn't just tell Ron that the sorting process was painful to be funny. They did it to because they wanted him to be in Gryffindor. So he felt like part of the family and so they could be around him more because he's their brother and they love him. Mm-hmm. So their the- so what they did in my mind is they told him it was going to be painful and awful. So he was expecting that. So he was nervous and afraid of the pain he would feel when he walked into that sorting. And then having a name that starts with W, he was one of the last kids sorted. So he had all that time to see all the other kids go up and be sorted and realize that it doesn't hurt at all. So when the hat sat down on his head, with most kids, they're terrified regardless of what they're expecting because it's a new experience and this hat is on their head and everyone's staring at them. But Ron was relieved because this thing he'd been fearing for maybe months wasn't actually painful. So for him, one of the first tidbits of his psychology, the sorting hat get, wasn't the first layer of stress and fear that every other kid being sorted had. It was the sense of like relief. And so the sorting hat's first view of Ron wasn't Weasley, Gryffindor. It was, this is a scary and stressful experience and this child is not experiencing that base level of stress that all the others have. He must be a Gryffindor. And that's my theory. Hmm, that, that is very interesting. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Moving on, I was rereading this chapter and Harry has a lot of dread about like uh, being like asked to leave, that he, he won't be sort of, it's been a mistake, but he also has a lot of dread about being asked to perform in front of others and thinking about this. I hate how they make the kids go up in front of the whole school, like this big performance, because that gives me anxiety. And I just think being this 11-year-old, especially if you're not from the magical community, like this, everything is new, and then you're just being put on like a spectacle in front of like the whole student body, and you have no idea what's going on, and it just seems, I don't know, it seems cruel to me. I think it makes sense in that they want you early on to see that you have a support system there. And because they get sorted in front of their houses, there's a bunch of cheering and like applauding and people openly welcoming them. So while it's nerve wracking right before you sit down, maybe the overall idea of doing it in public is that you'll get that warm welcome. So you'll feel like they're your family and they support you and want to be around you early on which maybe makes sense for something you'd want young children to see. Like, look at this group of people that already care about you. I know you miss your parents, but... So I get that, but, like, I think the little bit of stress they feel waiting to sit down would be scary even if it was alone in a room. And I think that the amount of support they get immediately once they're housed is almost worth that little bit of extra stress. Yeah. Just because I would be terrified if I'd been sorted alone in a little room and then like, okay, go find the Slytherin table. I'd be like, but but they're scary and intimidating. But if they've been sharing for me and clapping for me, then I'm like, oh, they already love me. This is great. It's definitely probably a temporary like nervousness, but I just hate like presentations or performing in front of large crowds. That's definitely my anxieties. And just thinking about... Poor 11-year-old Harry made me think of me as 11 and how I would hate that. But it's definitely, like, a boarding school, so their houses are their families. We'll talk a bit about sorting later. But, um, moving on, the all the kids get sorted 
And um, Neville talks a bit about his upbringing with his grandma, his gran, and how they didn't even think he was a wizard and he was a squib because he didn't show magic until he was eight. And I was wondering if that's a bit prejudiced of his family, since they seemed to really, like, be excited that he was a wizard and they seemed really, like, scathing about him being a squib. And we know the Longbottoms as a pretty, like, good family, like, his parents were aurors, like, his gr- gran and him always stood up for, like, what was right in the series. But I'm like, is th- could their family be a bit prejudiced about, like, them, um, him not being a wizard? It's just kind of like the reverse. Like, they support Muggleborns, but they wouldn't support their grandson if he was the opposite. I mean, I think, first of all, it's one of those examples of how everyone is shades of grey. Like, your family can fight for the good side, but still hold some prejudices and not be morally perfect. But I also think that maybe, especially coming from a pure-blood family, his family members have all had the experience of going to Hogwarts. They've all had that upbringing. And maybe that's just something they want for people in their family to experience. Like, it was the best years of their lives. It's where they became the person they are. And they want the people they love and care about to also get to go to Hogwarts and have those fun experiences. And especially as a pure-blood family, they probably don't know what the life options are for people who aren't magic. Like, they're like, where where does he go to school if he isn't magic? What school would we put him in? We don't know we're purebloods. Or what job prospects are there yeah. for non-magic people? Like, does he need to become a lawyer? Will he become a teacher? Like, I think it's a little bit of like, we just want to have him be a part of our family and our family is so involved in the wizarding world. We, we want to make sure that he can properly participate in that. It definitely feels there isn't a lot of support for squibs. Like, we'll probably talk about it later on in the series when it becomes more of a topic. But definitely reading it just seems a very shameful thing. And there's not a lot of support or, like, anywhere for them to really belong in the wizarding world. Which is kind of sad. All right. Next up, we have Harry sees Dumbledore in real life for the first time. And his first impression of Dumbledore is after his opening words... He asks Percy if he's a bit mad, and Percy's like, well, yeah, but he's brilliant, which is kind of like the description we get at Dumbledore for most of the series, is that he's mad, but he's brilliant. I mean, he is mad. He's clearly unstable. (laughs) Yeah. He's definitely that archetype of sort of like the, I'm a super genius in all these areas, but I have certain other areas in which I almost have a bit of a deficit. Like, Dumbledore has almost some social deficits in that he's so used to being admired and looked up to that, like... He has empathy issues and he struggles to, like, see certain things just because he's put himself on such a pedestal and been put on such a pedestal for so long that, like, there are things he doesn't understand and can't sort of see through his genius. Yeah, it's just interesting to see. We've had Dumbledore basically mentioned in almost every chapter leading up to this chapter, so this is the first chapter we meet him, and he definitely seems quite unusual. And especially, I think it's a bit different because the last chapter we really had Hagrid, like, talking Dumbledore up left and right. So now we just see this, this odd guy saying odd things and being a bit quirky, which is not really what you would expect from a headmaster. Especially compared to meeting Professor McGonagall. So we'll see how Harry's view of Dumbledore shifts and changes as he set Hogwarts more and also as he finally meets Dumbledore. It's interesting because I think Harry probably 
hasn't met a lot of quirky people as is, but from what he's heard about Dumbledore so far, being only about his intellect and his genius and his superiority, I bet Harry was picturing like a straight-faced, sort of grouchy, like a Winston Churchill type. <laughs> and it's probably such a shock to have like really been expecting that and to have gotten what Dumbledore is. He's like, are we sure this is the guy everyone was talking about? Because this guy is weird and... I have not been led to believe that the incredibly quirky are the same people as the incredibly intelligent, intellectual, and powerful. I just had a note about Hagrid drinking from his goblet, which is another alcoholic Hagrid reference. At it again. Mm -hmm. Keeping things up. Everything's lit at the head table. <laughs> and then I'll let you take away us meeting Snape for the first time. Oh yes. We finally meet Professor Severus Snape. And my little emo heart just flutters every time. <laughs> I can't help it. It's so interesting how from the start, he's portrayed as such an absolute classic red herring. Like, he seems guilty. He looks guilty. He makes Harry's scar hurt, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's got the nice foreshadowing of, like, Snape's glaring at Harry right past sort of Quirrell's turban, which is very nice because they do a good job of writing it so that Quirrell seems so unintimidating that you don't even contemplate that Harry's pain could be associated with that and not Snape. You're just like, absolutely, this evil guy over here makes Harry's scar hurt, 100%. It's such a quick and easy, instant introduction of Snape as an absolute red herring, mm -hmm. and it's great. And I love him. Harry references in the chapter that he stares at him and after Scarlet Court, he just gets, he just knows that he has the, this distinctive impression that that teacher does not like him, which is so jarring. And it just kind of sets up Snape as like, this is going to be like the villain. This is going to be the bad guy. I mean, I think he's a bad guy. I think he's an asshole. But um, it's definitely a matter of opinion, I guess. It's It's interesting because I think as a child reading the book, we're not used to sort of the multifaceted complexity of villains. Like when you're young and you've started reading, usually the villain is pretty bad from the get-go and it's pretty obvious who the villain is. So I feel like the introduction of Snape really plays on that. You're like, villain, bad guy. Like he's the one behind all the bad things. Mm -hmm. But he isn't the one behind any of the bad things, really. So that occur in this book. So it's... It's really well done and it sort of plays on the naivety of children and the sort of lack of more critical thinking sort of and just, okay, dark hair, moody guy, kind of glaring, villain, got it, it's him. And it's such an... Now, even his description fits like a villain description, like greasy, dark hair, hooked nose, and he looks like mean. Mm -hmm. And even when he asks Percy about him, Percy, even per perfect prefect Percy is kind of like... Like, oh yeah, he doesn't like, he wants this job, but he's not allowed to have it, and he favors Slytherin House. Like, so you just off the bat, like, without even, like, being really introduced to this character, like, he doesn't speak or anything, it's just a look. But you just get all of this, like, bad vibes off him. Yeah. Which is the big setup. Yeah, it's very nice, though. I think it, it, it as a child, it was sort of one of my earlier introductions to characters that seem shady as heck, but then don't end up being the bad guy. And I think it was good. It opened me up to a world of like more critical reading, I think. But also, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but I love him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you mentioned it at all in these like past six episodes. <laughs> I may have neglected to mention that I love Severus Snape. Uh, moving on from... Must we? 
I'm so happy to be here. Getting out of Snape. Ugh. Let's talk about the, the school song, because I just pointed that I have no school spirit. I never had any school spirit. I hated spirit days. I would leave. I didn't even know what our school mascot was. Uh, same thing in college. I didn't really care. But um, they have this like this sorting hat. Uh, not the sorting hat. The house, the, the school song that Dumbledore makes them all sing. And I just like felt so embarrassed. And I'm like, I hate this. Yeah. I think forced school spirit is awful. <laughs> when did you think of it? The, the, the song? It makes me like... I remember my school spirit days, obviously our school spirit days, and being like, oh gosh, stop trying to force me to be passionate about this school. There are maggots in the brownies. We have serious issues here. Um, But I... (laughs) Small town problems. (laughs) But I... I, what I do like about the Hogwarts school song is that they know it's embarrassing. Like, they lean into it. They're like, our song is really cheesy. It's not impressive. It's not fancy. It doesn't sound elitist or like, ooh, look how good our school is. It's ridiculous and cheesy. And the fact that Dumbledore encourages the twins to be obnoxious about it and everything, like, it's almost less uncomfortable for me because they all know how uncomfortable it is and they lean into it being ridiculous. So I'm like, no one takes it too seriously. Everyone's Mm -hmm. like, this is a joke. It's ridiculous. We're basically mocking the song, but all of us are together and it's okay. Yeah, I get why they do it to kind of make, I guess, the first years more comfortable. And it's to build camaraderie and like everything between everyone. And it's just a fun, silly way to end the night. But I'm just like, oh, I would hate to be singing a school song. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the Slytherin table probably sings it the least anyway. Oh, so yes. I'm sure you won't be the only quiet one during the song. Yeah. Everyone that hates school spirit goes to Slytherin. I think I would have school spirit if I was at Hogwarts. At Hogwarts, I would have school spirit. Yeah, I guess. We probably don't have school spirit because we both went to um, a small school. And so it was really hard to have pride in your school and like. Maybe it's because I went to college and didn't have homecoming and stuff, but like, I don't know, I just yeah. did my own thing. Now, you went to a big university, but you didn't really care about that stuff either. Yeah, when I was when I was at Queen's University, I sort of had school pride. I had that sort of elitist, like, this is Canadian Ivy and we're all so smart. So definitely for my first year, I was walking around in like the Queen's coat of arms cardigan and like rolling around like I was the smartest thing in the world. So I definitely had a bit of school pride. First year at Queens. Yeah, I feel like because Hogwarts is a boarding school, they really emphasize like I feel like maybe if since it was a boarding school and it was like a magic school and you're away from your family, like you probably feel a bit more pride for it than you would for like a typical high school. Yeah, certainly when I was at Queens and I was living on residence, that was the closest I felt to like having school pride. The buildings were beautiful. There were some castle esque vibes. You walked through the campus, from living on the campus to get to classes. So, like, I can see how people would have a lot of school pride at Hogwarts, and I think I would have a lot of school pride at Hogwarts, but not in any of my schools. They don't teach magic at any of the schools I've gone to, so... Moving on from school spirit, we we meet Peeves, the poltergeist, for the first time, with quite an entrance, with dropping um, walking sticks on Neville's head. Our dude, Peeves. (laughs) I, uh... I find Peeves really interesting because they specifically say he's not really a ghost, 
Which makes me think, okay, he's like a poltergeist. Mm -hmm. But like, he's clearly not a normal ghost because I don't think he was ever a living, breathing person or a wizard. So he's not a ghost because he can disappear and reappear. Because when they walk into the room and the walking sticks are floating, Percy asks Peeves to show himself and then he shows himself. So he's definitely some kind of hybrid between a ghost and poltergeist or something i've just always seen peeves as a manifestation of like teen angst like these kids are all away from their homes there's a whole bunch of them in the castle they all like they're hitting puberty they have all this like energy and this angst and this desire to break rules and i feel like he is like conjured subconsciously by the angst and like the spirits of the students and to that extent i think filch is the opposite yeah, I definitely like the idea that he's a manifestation of that. I think Filch is the opposite. He's also a manifestation. Like, in my mind, Filch, he's not a ghost, but he's not just a squib. Like, I think Filch was almost manifested as the opposite. So he's sort of like the repressed energy of people, the desire of the teachers to get the students to behave, all these sort of energies that are the opposite of the angst that is peeves is sort of what keeps Filch going. Like, he exists to balance out the Peeves energy. Yeah, it's so interesting to think he's like a manifestation of all this energy because we'll get more of him as the series goes. But I think it, it's kind of disappointing that we didn't get to see Peeves in the movie because he does have a lot of interesting like moments in the series that I would like to see. But I do get it, it was cut for um, timing and pacing because unfortunately they did they did film like I think all of Peeves scenes for the first movie, but it just didn't make the final cut. I definitely like discuss him more as like a manifestation of childhood mischief and angst. Right, next point I have is Harry has a dream. Now I definitely like the difference between Harry having like Voldemort-esque dreams where it's more like he's seeing into Voldemort's mind, but he also has dreams that are just like him having dreams. So this is a dream that kind of involves Quirrell and it involves Snape and I don't know. I'm wondering if, if it's more just like his nervousness of being in a new place or if it's more about Voldemort and the Horcrux because he does dream about um, Voldemort, Quirrell, and the Turpin, but he doesn't know, but he says the Turpin's talking to him, that he needs to go into Slytherin. So it makes me think it's more of like um, a Horcrux kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it the dream says a lot about Harry's sort of preconceived notions of Slytherin. Like it's ominous, it's scary, and it's, you should be in that house, and it's terrifying to him. So I think getting to see that dream in the book gives us a bit of an understanding of how deeply ingrained his opinion of Slytherin has become, and how like he's been led to that by being repeatedly told what Slytherin is like. So like we know that people like Hagrid have done a good job of priming Harry to not like Slytherin, which is important. But as for like, what the cause of the dream is it's hard to tell I feel like if it is a message from Voldemort or has to do with the Horcrux why would he want Harry and Slytherin like the goal of Voldemort is just for Harry to be dead mm -hmm. so I don't think Voldemort actually cares what house Harry is in um so I feel like it might be a little bit of a weird dream because of the scar pain and the proximity to Voldemort, but I think it's almost more so just a boy in a new place who's afraid, and as of now, the only things he's been shown that are villainous or he's been told to dislike, basically, are Snape and Slytherin. So his nightmare is, this is what I've been told the bad is, so that's what my nightmare is. I just find that it's very kind of like a, like a foreshadowing hint that the Turpin's talking to him, because we know, of course, 
how Voldemort will be revealed. So it's just like, I definitely like looking at Harry's like normal dreams. Well, not normal, but the ones that aren't connected to Voldemort because he has some like interesting dreams. Because dreams have a big part in the Harry Potter series. So yeah, absolutely. It's just interesting to see his first kind of like dream. So moving on now, we were going to talk a bit about the school ghosts since they were super big in the movies i find maybe after the, i feel like after the first two movies they weren't as referenced as much yeah yeah until helena ravenclaw shows up yeah until it kind of they throw them her in the, the last movie but uh yeah so each house has a ghost so we have nearly had the snick for gryffindor the fat friar for hufflepuff obviously the gray lady for ravenclaw and the bloody baron for slytherin and once again, he's this scary, bloody guy covered of in course. chains, as if we didn't already understand what we were supposed to be thinking of Slytherin House. Yeah. Or he's actually called the Bloody Baron, like creepy. Yeah. So I was wondering, do ghosts only exist at Hogwarts or do are they allowed to exist other places? Because we see a ghost only at Hogwarts. And later in the series, Harry asks how you become a ghost. And it's all about like not wanting to go on. I'm just wondering why are do they all just kind of go to Hogwarts because they're allowed to be there? I'm wondering if like this the ministry control where they can go because I know Myrtle gets in trouble for haunting her ex bully, and is like basically forced to like stay put. So it's just I just wondering like the ghost etiquette pretty much. I feel like the ghosts can to some extent choose where they haunt, so it's probably a place that they were very emotionally invested in in their life. So like they went to Hogwarts or they knew a founder of Hogwarts or they died at Hogwarts and maybe a little bit like just Hogwarts needed them kind of like the ghosts seem to sort of have a purpose as mentors to the students in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like maybe you died, you didn't leave because you decided to be a ghost and then Hogwarts is sort of a logical place where you can sort of have a role to fill and be around other ghosts. But we sort of know there are other ghosts that exist other places because when Nearly Headless Nick has his death day party, those aren't just the ghosts that are mentioned from being around Hogwarts. So I think there are other ghosts that haunt other places. We just so rarely get glimpses of other places where we have time to notice those things. That's what I found funny that we never see ghosts at Hogsmeade. We never see them in any other place. So I feel like there's very specific places they're allowed to be. I just wonder how the ministry, like, how they control that. Like, how do you control a ghost? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that maybe a little bit, they can be anywhere, but, like, I'm sure ghosts have been around in some of the locations you mentioned. They just aren't mentioned because once you've met them at Hogwarts a few times, they're just a ghost. They're hanging around. They're not really important to the plot, so they wouldn't be mentioned. Yeah, Harry doesn't care anymore once the novelty has, like, faded. yeah. Because I'm sure there's probably a ghost that haunts the pub. Yeah, an old drunk. You know, the old ghost who sits at the pub. Yeah, like, it's. I'm sure that that's a thing. And I'm sure there's ghosts at the Ministry of Magic who, like, workaholics who died and just keep doing their jobs, sort of like bins, but at the Ministry. I just think that they don't get mentioned because the initial shock of ghosts happens at Hogwarts, and then it's like, oh, it's that guy, it's just another ghost. Very interesting to think. Like a squirrel, you know? Once you've seen a few squirrels, you're like, okay, squirrels. <laughs> That's a very queen thing to say with your rabid squirrels. <laughs> We'd never say, oh, it's okay, it's just a squirrel like queens. You say, oh, shit, run. <laughs> <laughs> it's after us. So I noted, how did the Bloody Baron get covered in blood? And we get our answer six years later. 
unexpectedly. Yeah. So nice. it's very cool how, like, we meet these ghosts, and they're kind of just, like, this thing that's kind of put in there that's kind of, like, whimsical and magical. Like, there's ghosts at Hogwarts, and each house has a ghost, and, like, there are mentors to their houses. And Harry even asks, or is it Harry? Or one of the other kids asks, like, why is he covered in blood? And Nick is like, I, I've never asked him. And it's just, like, kind of, like, you just don't think it's just there's an actual like backstory to it and then it becomes a huge well a huge plot point but we, it, we get an answer surprisingly in the last book because i remember reading that and being like yeah it's kind of nice to get more than you want yeah it was very cool like to read something being like i need the answer to this this and this and then to also get more answers than you even thought to have questions is nice it's very unexpected but i definitely it was very cool getting the backstory and actually hollows and being just kind of like oh that makes sense. I think it's time we transition to the main topic of this chapter and our main discussion point. Of course. What everyone's waiting for. The very controversial and highly debatable and uh, peak controversy subject that is the sorting system at Hogwarts. Yeah, so I just want to preface for sorting. Like, I know sorting, I think Harry Potter made sorting like, I know sorting and houses is a very big thing in Britain for boarding schools because I looked it up because their school system's a lot different than ours so to me it never quite like I got it but I know it's based on like school systems but I, I think the Harry Potter houses have again such an ingrained part in fandom culture not just fandom culture but just like our culture in general like I remember being on Tumblr in 2012 and people on their bios would write their name their age their Hogwarts house and their personality type like it was that ingrained I actually had a job like um, questionnaire that I was filling out for a pretty nerdy job, but they asked what your Hogwarts house was, and it's just like you could. Did you lie and say Ravenclaw because nope. that's probably what they want to hear? No, I didn't. But like I've definitely, it's definitely just a casual thing. Like you could be at an office, and then people who watch here, even watch the movies, they're like, "Oh, what house would you be in?" And people always would have an answer. Like my brother and sister. My brother's never watched, read the books, but he's watched the movies, and he always assumes he'd be in Gryffindor. Like, you don't have to read the books to be involved with it. Yes. It's just this huge, like, cultural thing about, like, people wanting to belong to certain, like, groups. And it's just only how people identify. Like, people take their Hogwarts houses very seriously. Yeah, I think it's a bit about just how social people are and how they like to feel like they're a part of things. And even if you don't know a lot about the series, you can feel like you're a part of it by knowing where you would stand in the series, sort of. But I also think that people innately love to have, like, categories you could put people in or ways to, like, know one thing about a person and therefore infer other traits. Like, we have all kinds of, like, personality tests or, like, where do you stand morality? You know what I mean? Like, they have those, like, oh, I'm chaotic evil or I'm mm -hmm. neutral neutral, lawful good, you know? There's all these different... Yeah, everyone loves personality tests. Yeah, or are you, like, interpersonal, extrapersonal... Or even like true colors. Are you? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you ambivert? Yeah, there's a whole. We love personality defining groups. We love being put into boxes. So I think it sort of fills that need for people. Like that's the box I fit in. Oh, good, lovely. Because everyone has a little bit of all of them in them. But well, because I, I very clearly remember doing those personality tests. Like, they were very big, and you want to feel like you belong into something. But my first instance for the sorting is that all everyone kind of... I, they never have the houses, like, presented in an unbiased um, way. They're always presented through other characters. Like, we hear about the houses from Hagrid. We hear about them from Malfoy. We hear about them from Hermione, from Ron. And the sorting hat gives a very brief description of it, but how you don't know anything about the house besides, like, these very, like, just, like 
traits. There's no, nothing about, like, you. Don't, they, no one really tells you about the founders, what they stood for. Like, they don't really get any clear idea what they, what they want. So, and then there's obviously the biases for kids that come from magical families that they'd have their parents, their siblings being like, oh, you want to be in this house because this is a superior house. And I just find it very strange. Yeah, it is. It is odd that they don't sort of get a formal, like the hat's poem thing is adorable. Poem thing, his song, I guess, is great. But I definitely think it's a little bit just, maybe they don't want you to know too much about it because then you'll already start going through your mind and checking off which traits you have, which traits you don't have. And the sorting hat wants to see deeper than that. It's definitely all based on biases. Because like, I, fun story, in the third grade, this, the first Harry Potter book was our class novel. And after we finished it, on the last day of school, or second last day of school, our teacher said we could watch the movie and then we can do some Harry Potter themed activities. And so she wanted us to play Quidditch in the gym. We did it with those little scooter boards and like hula hoops and like beanbags and stuff. Classic. I remember the butt scooters. But no one wanted to be in Slytherin because she wanted to do teams based on the houses but no everyone wanted to be in Gryffindor and no one wanted to be in Slytherin because of the biases displayed in the movie that Slytherins are all bad so she had to combine like the houses names so everyone would be happy and it's just like that that's like the biases you kind of get where it's just they're very like they're not really in depth it's just like this is the brave house this is the smart house this is the evil house and this is the house everyone else goes yeah i feel like the better explanations exist like i'm sure there's novels written about mm-hmm. the different founders and like books that are written that are like introduction to hogwarts housing like don't mention the sorting hat because it's a secret but talk about the houses and the traits and stuff and here's a history of famous slytherins and a history of famous ravenclaws and hufflepuffs but i i think that like maybe only the hermione grangers of the world would think to read those books before getting sorted of course because they don't really know how it works so if it's a painful process you know it doesn't, like, they don't know if they have a say in it. They don't know if it has anything to do with who they are as a person that gets sorted if they don't know, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because historically houses were for more, like, British boarding schools, and they were more based on, like, where they were staying. So, like, you think dorms, like, this is, and they're usually named after, like, saints or yeah. whatever Britain does because of the Commonwealth and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And then they were used to, like, as a family, because that's where they spent most of their time, but it was also for, like like, sports and, like competitive like things and to build like like we said camaraderie and like loyalty and everything and so that's kind of what the houses do but i feel like it's it's like weird how they do it because you're it's basing it off like a person's like character as a child yeah it's um i think the way i think the housing process seems essential just to like divide up dorms and have school teams and stuff but the way they're housed and the traits and things that determine who goes in which house seems wrong to me. You have a point here on sort of whether you think it's right or wrong, the sorting system. Yeah, so I was wondering, because we, so how much is sorting, like, um, what someone wants to be in? Like, we know Ron wants to be in Gryffindor because his whole family's been in Gryffindor. We know Malfoy wants to be in Slytherin because it's expected of him, and Harry doesn't want to be in Slytherin. And we, and there's kind of, like, little, like, odd things like Hermione's put in Gryffindor rather than Ravenclaw despite the fact that she's very intelligent and Neville's put in Gryffindor rather than Hufflepuff because unknown reasons so I was wondering like how it does the sorting hat differ like is it based on what traits they admire and want to admit or is it based on the ones they have because as I said like they're sorted when they're 11 years old they graduate when they're 17 and I'm like there's no way you were the same person when you're 11 to when you're 17. Yeah I think 
if it's based more on what they want to be, it's a little weird because I can't imagine that many 11-year-olds choosing to be ambitious enough to have a decently sized Slytherin house. Like, I always felt like I was ambitious, but I can't imagine a group of 11-year-olds being big enough to have a Slytherin house equal to the people who decide to be brave or nice or smart. Like, I feels like the- When I say admire, I'm more thinking of Neville and Peter because I feel mm. like they admired the bravery and being reckless, but I don't feel like at 11, they felt like they were brave. Yeah, that's fair. And I always find that Neville's the other side of the coin for Peter, because Peter was the one that went into Gryffindor admired being his friend's bravery, but in the end was a coward. And Neville did the opposite, where he admired his friend's bravery and became courageous Yeah. over the years. But yeah, it's just very weird to judge children on their perceived characters as children, knowing that, like, they're going to develop an age. Like, Dumbledore does say later in the series that he thinks they sort too soon. But it's just, it's just so strange. I don't understand how it works. Yeah, I think the issue is that they put similar people in the same house. I feel like the sorting should be done, like, the hat reads your mind, looks to what kind of person he thinks you are, and then intentionally puts a combination of each type of person in each house, just so people grow up with more diverse people, with mm -hmm. a broader collection of like influences on their life. You know, the people who are sort of reckless Gryffindors get learn to like plan ahead and not be too reckless from the Ravenclaws. Yeah. And the Hufflepuffs maybe teach the Slytherins to be a little more empathetic on their journey to greatness, you know, like don't stomp on everybody to get to the top. That was one point I had because I was wondering if it was even right to sort them because if it's all based on these traits that they either admire or are, isn't that going to limit their growth because they're only going to be surrounded by people that are like them? And say, like, obviously, like, we say that Slytherins where they put, like, all, like, the pure blood. So, like, how are they going to evolve from some of their racist, like, upbringing if they're not, like, exposed to people outside their clique? And same with Gryffindors, like, the, the recklessness. How are they going to be exposed to people that are more level-headed? And it just feels like they all kind of put everyone in their group and then the series kind of, like, puts them all, they all stay in their cluster. Like, they don't yeah. really edge out of their cluster. And especially because at Hogwarts they encourage so much rivalry between the houses, it kind of feels like they're encouraging you to vilify the traits of the other house. Like, it's saying, like, you pro if you're not in Hufflepuff, you really should laugh at the idea that, like, fairness, honesty, and being a good friend is their key traits. Like, that's ridiculous and laughable. And I feel like they encourage that at Hogwarts, kind of, by separating them based on those traits. They then encourage people not to value the other traits. And I think it should be the opposite. Yeah, it's talked about, we talk a lot about how the other houses, like, there's a very big divide between all the other houses and Slytherin, because Slytherin is perceived to be a house where bad people go, and the other houses are where the good people go throughout the series. And I just feel like the rivalry, like, emphasizes that. Like, they always it's always us against Slytherin. And I feel it doesn't give like the kids in Slytherin or the other kids a chance to like grow from that. Like how, if they're always expected to be bad, like what are they supposed to do? So I have a bit of a theory about the hat. Ooh, we love a theory. So my theory is that originally, yeah, I know we love a theory. My theory is that the hat originally sorted actually based on the qualities. 
So he would look at someone, look deep into their mind and say, okay, you really value ambition. You want to go far. You're going to put in the work to get there. You're a Slytherin. Uh, you really value fairness, truth, honesty. Those are things you value and you want to work towards. You're a Hufflepuff. And then I think after hundreds of years of sorting people, the hat started to notice patterns and then started sorting based on those patterns rather than the actual traits. So he started to notice that a lot of the Slytherins ended up being Death Eaters. So then instead of purely putting people in Slytherin based on how much they value ambition, they would say, despite the fact that you're really brave and you're kind of reckless and you rush into things and you love adventure, you might be a Death Eater, so we're going to put you in Slytherin. Mm -hmm. So it, they're not really looking at people's traits anymore. They're looking at patterns that they saw that aren't entirely based on what the core principles were. Like evil is not a defining feature for any of the houses, but for some reason, based on the fact that quite a few bad wizards came out of Slytherin, it sort of became a defining trait when that was not the initial intent. I feel like the most effective way for sorting to occur is for the hat to intentionally spread out the people who it thinks might go bad, which would then give them exposure to the other kinds of people, the kind people, the empathetic people, muggle-borns, the... I think that diversity would have been better and would have reduced the likelihood of some of these people becoming Death Eaters rather than the hat deciding that everyone that looked evil at some point should probably just be in Slytherin. Yeah, because if you put everyone in a toxic situation, they're going to pick up on the toxic traits. Like if you're in a bad situation with like everyone having this one ideal, you're going to be influenced either way. That's kind of how I feel like with Snape. They talk with the houses being like a family. His only friend that wasn't in Slytherin was Lily. And when he stopped having Lily, the only people he was around were Slytherins. And because at that point, a lot of them were becoming Death Eaters, that was sort of the only support system and friend group he had was doing that. So then there becomes a lot of peer pressure and sort of like, how am I going to survive this if I don't join with the like with the people around me and become a part of what they're a part of? But if the houses had been separated differently where Snape's ambition and Slytherin traits didn't mean he was going to be surrounded by Death Eaters, but meant that he might be in houses with people who were really empathetic like Hufflepuffs or people who really valued learning like Ravenclaws, he might have had better influences and more options. Mm -hmm. And it's also they very like it's we see this a lot in the books that they kind of stick to their houses like they, they make a big deal that it's your family. This is who you're going to be hanging out with. But they're very, is rarely friends that are in other houses. Like, they don't really associate with anyone outside of Gryffindor besides Luna. And that's not even until the fifth book. So it's just, like, having friends outside of houses, it's just, like, not common. They kind of, like, because I don't even know if, like, you're allowed to bring, like, friends from different houses into your common rooms. So, like, how do you maintain friendships? No, I don't think so. Because they're not allowed to know the passwords. Yeah. So, like, how do you maintain, maintain friendships with people and in, in your, like, you may have classes with them, but... How do you maintain friendships if you're not that you can't like interact with them really? And I find that like the times where people of different houses do interact, it's always really positive. Like Luna gives Harry some really, really good advice mm -hmm. that, you know, about like how Voldemort would want him to feel alone rather than like he has friends and support. It's really good advice. And even like the Ravenclaw traits Hermione has really, really benefit Ron and Harry not just by her doing their homework, but her trying to get them to do theirs and getting them to actually prepare for things. And like, if she hadn't pushed them to study once in a while, they wouldn't have known half the things they knew that they ended up needing to know to survive later on. So I feel like if they had more encouraging of that, more 
sorting so that people can learn good trades from each other, I think it would have been a better overall choice. Well, I think speaking of Luna, like, I feel like they really, like, um, she's really good for their group because though Hermione's really intelligent, she's very narrow-minded in her thinking where she needs fact and logic and reason to believe in something, where Luna is more of, like, a dreamer and she believes and she has faith and hope. And I feel that is, like, what, like, really opened up their group because they're all Gryffindor. They all kind of have the same kind of ideals and everything. Hermione's a bit more analytical than the rest of them, but Harry, Ron, Jenny, they're all reckless. They're all think first, or act first, think later. Or act first, think never. (laughs) Think never. But Luna is definitely someone who is completely different than all of them. And I think she really benefits their group. And it's like, there could be more relationships like that, but they kind of like close them off from other avenues of friendship because they kind of had to stick with their kind. And it's kind of gross. And even when we look at Neville, Neville, who is the one true Gryffindor, of course, he always had the ability to be brave. And I think he always would have found that ability at some point. But I think he was pretty miserable in his earlier years at Hogwarts thinking I shouldn't be in Gryffindor. I'm not brave enough to be in Gryffindor. And I think if he was in a house where he was surrounded by some of the other traits of the other student houses, I think he wouldn't have been so nervous about whether or not he had that bravery. He'd be like, this isn't the only trait that matters. I might not be the bravest yet. I might not be the most outgoing yet, but I have other traits that actually have value as well. Like I'm a really good friend. I'm supportive. I I work hard, you know? And if he had people around him who valued those other traits, he would have had less of a difficult time on his way to becoming incredibly brave. He would have just not suffered as much. Which I think is kind of what it all comes down to in the end, is when you tell people, this is what you are, this is the thing you are, and the other people are something else. Yeah, he definitely kind of felt like the odd one out. You're not only encouraging them to dislike each other, but to devalue it. Yeah. Because looking at, even like in the dormitory, like, Harry and Ron are best friends. Dean and Seamus are best friends. And Neville's just kind of the odd one out that they all like him, they all are friends with him, they all get along with him, but he's not as close with all of them as he could be like I know he has like other friendships in the series he's pretty close to Hermione but he never really has as close friendships as with the rest of the Gryffindor boys and I think they make it very obvious that he is different to them poor Neville yeah I think it's just one of those things that like I guess for the convenience of storytelling being like everyone who has these traits goes into this house is easy to keep track of but I think from a realistic perspective intentionally mixing the students up for diversity and would have been a smarter choice. It would have benefited all of the characters a lot more. And it probably would have like reduced the evil, right? Like, yeah, I was just gonna say like, having people feeling more like a part of something and all a part of a community, because I feel like because Slytherin House is off the side of the rest of the houses, they're more susceptible to being taken in by Voldemort because they've already been, like, outcasted by the rest of the school. Yeah. So the rest of the school definitely doesn't like Slytherin. It's just, like, this bias that's been around for years. They don't like them. And then it's surprising where, like, half the house turns out to go to the dark side because that's basically what they're told as soon as they get into that house. Like, well, this is your future. You're evil now. Yeah, either... You're either going to be evil or everyone's going to treat you like you're evil regardless. 
Which is, again, not how it should be. Like, people like Percy Weasley. Percy Weasley should have been in Slytherin. I was going to say, Percy is a very ambitious guy. Like, based on actual personality. And I'm not, I'm a Slytherin and I hate Percy. I don't want him in my house. I find Percy interesting now that I'm older. But he's very ambitious. He works hard. He has a lot, that's to me the key trait of Percy is his ambition. And I have nothing against his actual ambition. He shouldn't have turned his back on his family. But good for him trying hard, working hard, and achieving his career goals. But he should have been in Slytherin. And he would have been interesting in the Slytherin house because he's inherently, like, not a terrible person. He's kind of annoying. But he would have been an interesting addition to that house. And yeah, Percy is very pompous. And he has, like, a things that he has a thing about authority. Like, he's a prefect in the book when we meet him. And he just... As soon as he gets higher up levels, like, he thinks a lot of himself for having higher authority because he's a prefect, because he's head boy. And then when he's, like, it's interesting seeing him later in the series when he becomes an assistant because now he's at the lower end of the pool. But Percy's always been very ambitious and he thinks, but we also know, we see him with his family and we know he loves his family and he and he generally has, like, what's right, what's wrong. But if, if I think, like... Putting someone like Percy in Slytherin, where he should have been, A, is going to be good for Percy because there are other ambitious people who are gonna imagine having to do group projects with Gryffindors being Percy Weasley I would hate my life you know what I mean Percy's either a the person that just took over the entire project and didn't get every anyone else their chance or he's b the person that everyone just kind of like like fucked off because they knew he'd he'd do it ignores despite the fact that he's trying to get them to do the project yeah but you know what I mean like so he would have done well in Slytherin House for those reasons, and Slytherin House would have done well to have him because Percy's an interesting example of he does sort of have that ambition and that like a bit of an authority complex, but his authority complex isn't based on his birth status, isn't based on his blood status, and isn't based on his finances or his family's social standing. Yeah, it's he's earned based them. based on things he's earned, which is like his status as a prefect or his marks. And I think that would be a good thing to have in the Slytherin House to A, show the Slytherins that like, you don't get to be better than everyone else just because you're a pureblood and show the non-purebloods that you can also achieve things and have authority and succeed. Based on like your own merit. Regardless, you can earn these things. Yeah, and I think that's just one example of how good it would be. Like I think Percy definitely appreciates, like he works hard because, yeah, he wants like, it. it's out of his like own own ambition like he prides himself on being like where he is but he knows that he has earned it and i think like when he falls out with his family it's like he kind of knows that he's in the wrong but he doesn't want to give it up because it's what he's worked towards but he kind of knows at that point he hasn't really earned it despite everything else he's done first is such an interesting character i just i think he's such a good example of someone who was put in the wrong house and how positive it would have been for him as a character and for the people in that house to have had him there even the twins like the twins have a lot of Gryffindor in them but like they've got a little bit of Slytherin too and I think they'd probably still be they are pretty ambitious yeah they'd probably still be in Gryffindor first just based on their uh lifestyle choices their uh what did I say about uh act now think never (laughs) But they do plan ahead in certain areas, and they certainly have the ambition and the work ethic. They have a lot of Slytherin in them, and it's not a bad thing. And they would have been a fun addition to the Slytherin house, because I don't think the Slytherins would be able to be as uptight as they're portrayed when they have to live with the Weasleys. 
No. I just wonder, like, who are Fred and George's roommates, and how do they survive the school year? Uh, yeah, they don't. They're dead. All the other male <laughs> Gryffindors of that year are dead. <laughs> they died tragically in probably toilet-related accidents. They left. I mean, I love Fred and George, but I would hate to be their roommate. Yeah, it's funny. When I sit down and think about actually being in a house. Like, if I had to pick who my group project would be, because in the end, I feel like that's one of the key things in in housing is, like, that I can relate to. is like, it's a group project. You're trying to win the house cup, and these are the people on your team. I'm so happy I'm not a Gryffindor. And I feel like Hufflepuffs are so kind and sweet and empathetic. They probably do very well, but they probably also follow a lot of rules, like Ravenclaw, and that probably doesn't lead to anything like I would want to go a little more outside of the lines so I feel like Slytherin is always what I would choose like the people are going to try hard they're going to work hard they want to do well regardless of how inherently intelligent they are they are going to try their best and I would rather be on a team of people trying their best than on a team of like geniuses who are half-assing it or who think they're all smarter than each other and can't work towards the common goal Gryffindor just seems to be like a lot of chaos because there's just a lot of people that want to do something, but they all want to do the same thing. Yeah, Gryffindor is the group project where like one person's supposed to research, one person's supposed to write the essay, one person's supposed to do the slides, and one person's supposed to present, and all of Gryffindor House just wants to present. (laughs) I think that's it for us today. Let us know your thoughts about our thoughts on the sorting system, and if you agree or you disagree. Let us know what characters you think should be alternate, their alternate houses would be. And don't give us the boring ones. We all know Hermione would have made sense in Ravenclaw. Blah, 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 yeah. Give us controversial ones. Yeah, give us your hot takes. All right, thanks for listening. We appreciate all of you. Hi, mom. (laughs) Hi, my mom. (laughs) Hi, moms. (laughs) And yeah, if you have any other comments on future episodes or this episode or previous episodes, you can email us at potterrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com. Or yes, comment across our social media platforms and we'll be back with uh, the next chapter, which is chapter eight, The Potions Master. (sighs) See you next time. (laughs) 